Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Amy Bass on the show, and we will be talking about her new book, Those About Him Remain Silent, The Battle Over W.E. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Amy Bass on the show, and we will be talking about her new book, Those About Him Remain Silent, The Battle Over W.E.B. Du Bois. I asked my wife, who is from Western Massachusetts, if she knew who W.E.B. Du Bois was, and of course she did. Most Americans know that Du Bois was one of the founders of the modern American civil rights movement. I then asked her if she knew where Du Bois was born and raised. And she did not, even though she was, in fact, from a town not at all far from Du Bois' birthplace, that being Great Barrington, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires. Now, this is somewhat surprising because my wife, a well-educated person uh, from the area, really should have known this. And it's hard to understand why she wouldn't know this because he is an extraordinarily famous fellow. Amy Bass has written a book entirely about the phenomenon of remembering and forgetting Du Bois in Western Massachusetts and the nation at large. Du Bois was a complicated figure. He was black and Western Massachusetts is predominantly white. Du Bois was a civil rights leader and Western Massachusetts is known as a very progressive place that supported civil rights, but he was also late in his life a communist and Western Massachusetts is not known as a place that supported communism. So after Du Bois died in 1963, I believe there was some question about how to remember him or if the people of Great Barrington should remember him at all. Amy chronicles the debate very well in the book, and uh, we had a really interesting discussion about the place of historical memory, of public history, of the way in which people craft the past in order to make it fit the agendas of the present. This is still going on today. You can think about tea parties. Why is the tea party movement called the tea party movement? Well, you know, They've borrowed that particular tag from an episode that most Americans will know. In any event, I really enjoyed talking to Amy today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Amy. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm just fine, thank you. How are you? Very well. Well, you know, the weather here in Iowa is absolutely gorgeous. We have really beautiful springs. I, however, have hay fever, so it's not so good for me. How about the weather there in New Rochelle? We're, we're finally starting to get some green going on, so I think we're, uh, we're heading into spring quite well at this point. I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that. We have Amy Bass on the show today, and we'll be talking about her really interesting and, and uh, provocative, I would say provocative, new book, uh, Those About Him Remain Silent, The Battle Over W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, I have uh, read the book cover to cover, and as I say, I, I was uh, challenged on every page to rethink uh, what I know about W.E.B. Du Bois, which I have to say really isn't a whole lot being a Russian historian by training, but I highly recommend the book to anyone interested in Du Bois or particularly the issue of historical memory. And I would say the book really is a contribution to the uh, literature on historical memory. Uh, To begin the interview, Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I, uh, I grew up in New England, about 16 miles north of where Du Bois was born. Uh, in a little town called Richmond. Um, went to college in Maine at Bates and majored in history, um, mostly because I, I didn't want to turn my love for literature into a chore, so I dropped my <laughs> English major. Um, <laughs> I went with history and and kind of ended up in graduate school by default, um, but started working with just this amazing group of people um, at Stony Brook University in the doctoral program there uh-huh. and was really lucky to be, I think, the only one who 
did doctoral work at Stony Brook in the history department at the same time that, that Matthew Jacobson and Nikhil Pal Singh were both there. They, they both overlapped by a very brief period of time. Um, and I think I'm the only, the only product of that overlap. Um, so I was really, you know, fortunate in that to have these two, you know, amazing minds of, of American studies, Matt's now at Yale and, and Nikhil's at NYU, um, to, to get me going and to get my mind working in ways that, that I didn't know it was going to. What was your, um, first, what was your dissertation in first? You have a couple of books. and Yeah, my dissertation was about the 1968 Olympic Games and the black power movements um, that came out of them, about Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos mm-hmm. and the Olympic Project for Human Rights. So, and, that, and that Finnish guy. Wasn't he Finnish? <laughs> no, Australian. Australian? That Australian Peter Norman. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, the silver medalist. Yeah. Um, who wore who wore a button of support for yeah. his two for his two American colleagues? Right. Um, so and that was that was that turned into my first book and mm-hmm. it was um, you know it was a it was an interesting project it was one that could have dangerously gotten me pigeonholed as a sports historian mm-hmm. um, it's not really a sports history it's a civil rights history mm-hmm. um, and so from there I did go on to edit a series of essays uh, for my second book about sports which. Mm-hmm is the book in the game, but the, the kind of twist on that is that I asked non-sports people to write the essays. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a really eclectic group of people that are really good at what they do, thinking about what they do uh, within a sports context. Uh-huh. Um, and then the Du Bois book, yeah. which uh, just came out last fall. If I could just uh, give a plug for the Stony Brook History Program. <laughs> I happen to know it is fantastic. I have a a colleague that works there, a very brilliant guy named Gary Marker. Absolutely. Uh, and it's really a fantastic place. Um, yeah, he it, was chair of the department. When yeah, I was pretty much any place associated with Gary Marker is going to be a fantastic place in That's my good. mind. But uh, it's a it's a terrific program. So I'm yeah, not surprised it really that it produces the stars that now light up the sky. Just, <laughs> so, uh, in any event, um, tell me how you came to write uh, those about him remain silent. Um, the Du Bois book came out of a moment that I actually had at Stony Brook um, in a seminar with Nikhil Palsing. Um, we were reading Paul Gilroy's book, The Black Atlantic, and there was just a passing mention of Du Bois growing up in Great Barrington in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, in western Massachusetts. Um, I think I must have been a third-year student at that point and had obviously read quite a bit of Du Bois and, you know, considered myself a complete guru about the Berkshires, and this was such a sort of a, I would say almost, it was shocking to me um, to find out that Du Bois had been born in Great Barrington. I did not know that, that I actually kind of rebelled against it. I went to McKill and said, well, this isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, it is. And I said, oh, no, it's not. And he said, yeah, well, you no, know, yeah, it is. Um, so I started doing some digging and found out that, yeah, sure enough, um, Du Bois had been born in Great Barrington. Paul Gilroy, of course, had not made a mistake. Um, so I called my parents, who are both journalists, uh, still in the Berkshires, writing for the Berkshire Eagle, and said, you know, did you guys know? And, of course, parents always know, so their answer was yes. Um, and then they said that there had been some skirmishes about it in the late 60s, early 70s, that their friends had been somewhat involved in about trying to memorialize his birthplace. Um so I kind of put it on the back burner. I had a lot to do. I was, you know, about to defend a dissertation proposal and, and go through that whole thing. But it was something that I always wanted to come back to. And when I came back to it, um, it turned into this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, that sounds good. I mean, it sounds like a really terrific project for you because you have roots in the area. I know that I find myself in the age of the Internet looking up my hometown a lot, trying to figure <laughs> out what I don't know about it, which turns out to be a lot. The most famous person, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of interesting, in the um, in the in the autobiographical sense is the most famous person from Kansas who is Dwight David Eisenhower, I would say. Mm-hmm. Every Kansan knows that Dwight David Eisenhower is from Kansas, except that he's not. <laughs> so we have sort of the opposite case. You know, it's, a, it's a problematic memory. <laughs> yes, we have, we, we have adopted uh, uh, Dwight a- David Eisenhower, but he's not really ours. So in any event, maybe you could just begin by telling us uh, who W.E.B. Du Bois was, because I think there are a lot of people, especially those who listen overseas, who might not know who he was. Yeah, I think that the you know the grandest way to summarize Du Bois is to is to use the the phrase that he was the architect of the modern civil rights movement. Um, the more specific thing that tends to follow him around, you know, the reason that he's on a postage stamp, for example, is that he was a co-founder of the NAACP. Um, but I, you know, he's it, he's a difficult person to to summarize because he was such a prolific thinker. He was such a prolific writer. He was someone that 
explored so many different ways to understand the world and economics and justice and humanity um, to the point where, you know, after trying on just about every worldview there was, he, he you know, wrote some of his own um, ideas such as Pan-Africanism and what have you. Um, he is, he's difficult to corral. I mean, he, you know, he died at the age of 95. Mm-hmm. He published over, over 4,000 pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, he has an ideological evolution that I would say um, is unparalleled uh, in the 20th century and maybe ever. Um, and he is, unfortunately, best known for, for the last decision that he made within, within this ideological evolution, and, and that is at the age of 93, he joined the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, just before expatriating himself to Ghana, mm-hmm. uh, where he died two years later on the eve of the March of Washington. He actually mm-hmm. died the night before mm-hmm. uh, the march took place in D.C. that August. But I think we should say also, and tell me if I'm correct in this characterization, that uh, he has now been, I want to say canonized, but his star has risen now. He He is well known to everyone in academia in the United States and I didn't even and know he was I didn't yeah. even know he was a communist at the end of his life I really didn't <laughs> and, and, I, and many would say that he really wasn't yeah I, I, didn't, um, I didn't even catch certainly. that I know him from the souls of black folks and uh, and uh, some other things I know that he's widely read in uh, you know African-American studies departments everywhere he's really one of the he's one of the people that is always mentioned in connection with the civil rights movement so he's widely known now I don't think that was always the case but, um, well, I think he's had, you know, there's, there's been an, an interesting relationship with him in academia. I mean, certainly, you know, he, he was respected and, and certainly considered part of a canon. But, to, you know, being known in academia doesn't necessarily mean that you have much of an impact anywhere else. Uh, <laughs> to say that very mildly. Yeah. yeah. And, the other, and the other thing with it is, is in terms of what I discovered writing this book, um, you know, the book doesn't really have a happy ending. It, it has a cautious ending. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is still a lot of venom and a lot of animosity about the legacy of Du Bois mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because of those communist affiliations and because of some more insidious reasons, as I, as I you know, try to point out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So uh, one of the frames of the book, one of the topics and themes of the book, as I mentioned, is, in, is historical memory. And uh, really the, the thing that uh, one of the things that the book investigates is the attempt of the people of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I actually know Great Barrington a little bit. My uh, wife is from Northampton. Okay. Uh, and so, so I've been out there. It's in the Berkshires. Maybe you should, uh, you could tell us a little bit about Great Barrington and also how uh, Du Bois's ancestors got there. Um, okay, <laughs> which is partially a question better suited for David Levering Lewis um, and his fantastic biographies of Du Bois. The, um, I mean, Great Barrington is is kind of the center of South County. The Berkshires. Um, the Berkshires span north to south, um, Vermont to Connecticut, with New York on the western border. Um, it's it's a different state in a way. I mean, Massachusetts really breaks up. There's Boston, and then there's everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within the everybody else, the Berkshires are the really far away everybody else. I would say there's Boston, Worcester, and every place yeah. else. I, I yeah, and then that. and then keep going for another yeah. hour and a half, and you're you're yeah. going to hit the the yeah. borders of the Berkshires. Um, it's a, it's a very conflicted place in terms of that. I mean, I will I will admit that there are Yankee fans in the Berkshires because of the proximity to New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a place that became quite early on in the 19th century a haven for New Yorkers. Um, it is not a haven for Bostonians, but it has become a place of, of summertime for New Yorkers. And because of that, it has a very particular cultural edge to it um, and has for a long time, whether it was you know the likes of, of Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville and people like that inhabiting the Berkshires in the 19th century, you know, all the way through to the to the cultural festivals and the major theater groups and the, it's the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and you know the Norman Rockwell Museum and all of these different things um, that make it you know it's the self-proclaimed cultural cultural resort premier premier cultural resort um, of America, um, which is you know a stupid thing to say about a place, but also I think kind of well earned. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very it makes it it makes it a very complex place. It's it's physically stunning. It's culturally deep. It has a very large rural local population um, that is very different from its visiting summer population. Um, it has you know a huge community of artists and intellectuals and what have you. It it has you know some some really great educational institutions. Williams College is in the northern part of the of the county. So it makes for a very complex place. Um, it's also quintessentially New England. Um, 
you know, it's very proud of its of its New England heritage, of its northern heritage, um, of its of its own history. And Du Bois Du Bois sucked a lot of that up. I mean, he was, um, as he writes in one of his autobiographies, quintessentially New England. Um, the way he dressed, the way he spoke, the way he, you know, kind of assumed things about people had a very had a very New England um, stake about it. Mm-hmm. And his family was there for a long time, mm-hmm. um, and his family got there the way any family's um, any any African American heritage was going to. Um, he had ancestors that participated in the rebellions of the American Revolution. Um, he had ties to one of the more famous slave families in the area. Um, so he, uh, you know, he his family was there for a long time, um, which means that his stake in, in Berkshire history isn't just that of of him and his own legacy, but also in terms of African American life in early New England. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was he the? Uh the only uh, there were very few um, African Americans in Great Barrington in the 19th century. That's true. Um, there were some, though. I mean, there was you know the larger the larger black communities in Massachusetts were going to be in Boston and also on Martha's Vineyard. Um, but there was a core group within the Berkshires. Both Great Barrington had you know a, a good percentage, which still doesn't mean very many. Um, but his family did have you know longstanding roots there. Um, but yeah, he, it was, it was but a handful. It, it wasn't a large community. And, and within that community, you know, he and his mother attended a different church than, uh, than most of the black residents in Great Barrington, largely because of, of their proximity to it. Um, so he, even within, you know, the smallness of African American life in Great Barrington, he and his mother were, were outside of that for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to have you speak a little bit about, because it was sort of shocking to me, is the way in which he describes, uh, Great Barrington, I mean, as you say, he was an incredibly prolific writer. The way he describes his childhood, uh, at least at, at some moments in Great Barrington, and it is, uh, it's sort of in the elegiac mode, I guess I would say. He, he says things like there was no discrimination. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a binary for a legacy because Du Bois, um, du Bois writes about Great Barrington quite a lot in his autobiographical writings. And Du Bois is kind of fantastic in that he, he rewrites his autobiography several times throughout his life, and they are all very different from one another, um, which, um, which is just a great thing about, about autobiography in general. The brand, the brand new day policy. Yeah, and you know his what I would consider the definitive autobiography is the last one, which he wrote, you know, when when he was you know almost at the end. Um, but even you know the souls of black folk, which what I would you know his essays, which I would I would think most would argue is his most famous work, um, have a lot of autobiographical pieces in them. Um, so he writes that the but but one of the consistencies within all of these autobiographies is the way he writes about his home, um, both how beautiful it was. Um, he writes really poetically about the Berkshires and its beauty, um, but also about his relatively uncomplicated youth, which is saying a lot because he was a black kid growing up in New England in, in rural New England uh, with a single mother. Um, you know, part of an extended network, but his his father flew away pretty pretty quickly, pretty early on. Um, so it's a it's an interesting scenario. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you know, the town supports him. Um, he's valedictorian of his high school class. The town kind of closes ranks to to borrow from his own language, to send him to college, to to provide him with books, to really help him. They they understood that someone exceptional was within their community in in Will Du Bois. Um, which is which is really something that the town took pride in, um, and yet at the same time he writes in Souls of Black Folk about you know the first time he discovers the veil, what he calls the veil, which is you know that that ethereal thing that separates white and black America, and that was from an experience in a Great Barrington school situation mm-hmm. um, with one of his classmates, a girl who would not share a name card with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it works in a lot of different in a lot of different directions. Du Bois is not one for ever giving the easy answer, um, which is why he's so prolific. Um, so I, I think that on the one hand, yes, he, he you know, continually writes in these beautiful ways about, about his childhood. He grants a lot of recognition to people like his high school principal for getting him where he got to. Um, and at the same time, he recognizes that it was within the confines of Great Barrington that he first began to understand the tensions of race. Mm-hmm. You know, I found that episode very, very interesting. And then he, uh, he goes to college, and he first goes to Fisk University, right? Where he, his eyes uh, are really kind of opened. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and Fisk was a very you know it, they they he, they really planned and it was it was three men in the in the community that that served as his advisors, um, and the one that he writes about most notably is Frank Hosmer, who is his high school principal, someone that he stays in in touch with for many many years and and continually he just you know profoundly thanks him whenever he can, um, but that he needed to go south, um, that he you couldn't you couldn't start at Harvard in terms mm-hmm. of where he was at and he needed to get some stuff under him. Um, and so, yeah, he goes to Fisk and the, you know, it was an entirely different experience. It wasn't his first experience. He'd gone away for some summers to work waiting tables in Michigan and what have you. So he, he had certainly encountered, you know, the reality of race in, in much more striking ways than he had in Great Barrington. But yeah, Fisk was a, Fisk was a different place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I told you in the uh, pre-interview that, uh, I had a really good talk with a fellow, Colin Grant, who wrote a book about um, Marcus Garvey. And uh, Garvey had a kind of parallel experience where he, he's, he's come from the islands to New York, and uh, New York's kind of booming. And then he decides he needs to see, I guess, real race relations in America, and he goes to the South uh, for a tour. And he's absolutely shocked by what he sees. He can't, he can't believe it, you know, the, the deference that uh, African-Americans show white people in the South. He's just completely, he's just completely shocked by it. Um, and I kind of imagine Du Bois had a similar sort of experience coming from Great Barrington and then going into the South in that way, because uh, it, it, it must have been shocking for him. So anyway, to, to kind of make a very long and interesting story short, he goes to Harvard and then becomes a famous intellectual, starts the NAACP with a bunch of people, uh, and, and you know becomes a, a, a very significant public intellectual, let's put it that yeah. way, um, probably one of the most significant of the 20th century in the United States. And uh, much of your book is about the attempt of some members of the community in Great Barrington in the 70s. Did it start in the 70s or the 60s? I can't remember. It starts in the, it starts in the 60s. Yeah, to, to commemorate their, um, I guess, favorite son, their native son, um, W.E. Du Bois. And uh, maybe you could just pick up the story with the first people who decide that it might be a good idea for Great Barrington to acknowledge that he was, in fact, raised there. Yeah, I mean the book. The book really takes a segue, and the the first part of the book about you know Du Bois's early days in Great Barrington wasn't ever supposed to be what I was doing, um, but it wasn't until you know the the '60s part that came in that I realized that it it really was important to see how strikingly different the Great Barrington of the '60s was from the Great Barrington within which Du Bois grew up and and had all of this support um, and understanding within. So it's um, it's after his death, and the the, char- the main character is Walter Wilson, um, and Walter Wilson is <laughs> Walter Wilson is the kind of character that a historian would have to invent um, <laughs> if he didn't actually exist. He's just he's one of those people that you come across that is that fantastic, um, and I you know he's at best at worst complicated. Um, he was from the South. He was a member of the Communist Party. He had worked um, as an ACLU labor organizer in the Deep South in the 1930s, which I think means he was very brave. Um, He was a prolific writer. Uh, He was a collector of very expensive Shaker furniture. Um, He was a real estate mogul. Um, He was a humanitarian, and he was an incredibly unethical businessman. And he and he, he and he sounds, really he sounds a lot like an American. That, yeah, well, you know. he, he um, it's interesting because he he left nothing behind. I'm sure he burned it all himself. Um, but uh, he's he's someone that when you talk to people about him, which is what I finally had to start doing. You know, I'm not an oral historian, and I I didn't want to turn this into a you know these are my recollections kind of book. But there was there was no other way to get at Walter, and and he had been my parents knew him. Um, and and one of the first things that anyone ever said about Walter when you when you asked about him was oh his wife was lovely, um, but you know he was the kind of person that was surrounded by a lot of people because he was just that interesting to be around. Um, so my biggest source for him was his lawyer, his personal lawyer, who is you know still alive and actually only somewhat semi-retired in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, William Simons. Um, and William Simon spent a lot of time with me just kind of getting into the head of Walter Wilson and why Walter Wilson became the person that kind of said to Great Barrington, we're, we're going to commemorate Du Bois. And it started because of, of Walter Wilson's real estate acumen. Walter Wilson found the property that was the childhood home of Du Bois. 
And one of Walter Wilson's real estate clients um, was Evan Gordon, um, who is who was in New York looking for a second home in the Berkshire area. Um, you know, a very eminent scholar, um, still has an office at, at Teachers College at Columbia, um, and certainly you know dead center in the circle of, of black intellectuals in New York City. And and Gordon and and Wilson became friends. Because as Gordon told me, when he was looking for a real estate agent, Wilson was the only one that had an equal opportunity symbol in his real estate ads <laughs> at that time. And so Gordon called him and said, "I, you know, made, they they made this deal." And Gordon got his his home, I think, eventually in Steventown, right outside of the Berkshires. So when Walter found the Du Bois, you know, what we what is now called the the Boyhood home site. He called Gordon and said, I found it. And Gordon said, let's buy it. So they split it, and it wasn't a terrible amount of money, and they got the deed, and then they started planning. Um, he purchased it. He, you know, They created a committee, and what their desire was, um, they wanted to make it a national landmark. Mm-hmm. And I think Walter thought it was a slam dunk. Um, Walter was someone who had... You know, grand plans for lots of things, and like I said, not necessarily the ethical system to completely back it up. Um, William Simons told me, for example, that the reason he severed his relationship with Wilson was the day that Wilson tried to sell a condemned house to a blind man. Um, <laughs> and that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's really not much else you can yeah, do. That, that sounds like a. Uh... You know, it sounds like a, a, a it sounds like a saying. I could sell a, a you know a, a condemned a house, house to a blind man. man. You know, it's yeah. And he, you know, he had lots of, of you know he he claims he he invented the the second home industry in the Berkshires in yeah. the 1950s and 1960s when, you know, obviously this has been a place of second homes since the you know since the mid 19th century. Let, let me ask you to pause just for a second and tell us what the property looked like when they found it. And how the did they find it? The property looked um, awful. Um, the property looked awful until extremely recently. Um, there was a little bit of a cellar left. It was pretty overgrown. Um, so the place had been abandoned then, or was it uh, – how did it fall into disrepair? I... It had deteriorated. Well, at one point, it had actually come back into Du Bois's possession. Um, a group of people had purchased it for him for his birthday at the earlier part of the century, um, but he didn't have enough money to do anything with it um, and finally had had uh, had given up on it. So it, it kind of fell into disrepair over the course of, of the 20th century and then came into Walter's hands. It was pretty much just a, you know, a field and a, a cellar hole. Uh-huh. Um, and and it got worse. It got worse after that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, he had all kinds of plans for building a museum and and you know the national landmark campaign. And I I don't. I think he thought it would be difficult in terms of organization, and I think he thought it would be difficult in terms of fundraising. I didn't think he thought that what happened would happen in terms of the town's reaction to recognizing that you know essentially Du Bois once lived here. Mm-hmm. So explain uh, that engagement, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> that engagement um, was, I mean, essentially, the. I think that what happens to Du Bois and his legacy, um, if you're going to take kind of what I would say a vulgar historical approach to it, is that he really died at the wrong time. Um, and this was something that he himself recognized. I mean, one of one of my favorite things that he wrote was was you know, to paraphrase him: had he died at fifty, you know, he would have been lauded, and and by seventy five, his death was practically requested. Um, <laughs> he he was someone, you know, that in the when he died in nineteen sixty three, civil rights was about to have its its biggest political spectacle in terms of the march on Washington. But by the time Wilson comes into it, sixty seven, sixty eight. King's assassination, the escalation of the Vietnam War, the, the dialogue of, of the Cold War, you know, really simplifying what patriotism meant into very black and white, very Democrat versus communist, totalitarian, you know, versus liberty kinds of, of ways. Um, du Bois's legacy didn't stand a chance mm-hmm. um, at that point. You know, dying in Africa, having, you know, the FBI and the State Department pursuing him as his socialist leanings really grew. Um, you know, he became disfavored by colleagues and enemies alike, um, particularly after the State Department really targeted him. Him and, and, and certainly he was not alone. People like Paul Robeson and, and what have you were certainly under the same kind of scrutiny. Paul Robeson much more famously, mm-hmm. um, to be sure. And so when Du Bois dies, you know, there's an interesting comparison. He dies in Ghana and a state funeral is held. 
Um, he dies. He dies in Ghana, and yet here in America, very little happens. Um, and so, even though the international legacy of Du Bois was terribly secure, um, he couldn't come home. Mm-hmm. Um, Great Barrington, you know, really, really didn't have any kind of mindset, and I don't think probably any any small town in America would have, um, in the midst of the Cold War, going full blast in the way that it was, to let somebody, a black communist, who again died in Africa, to be considered a neighbor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that I think I think that was something that Walter Wilson did not expect, but it was something that took fire, um, and it was something you know even I was surprised going into the research for this. I thought it was going to be a really tiny little project. I thought you know this will be a great way to go home and do some research, and you know pound out an article, and then I came across a quote that was from a commander of a, a VFW in Great Barrington, in which he said that, you know, any kind of commemoration of Du Bois and Great Barrington would be the same thing as building a statue of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and and that's really what turned the project for me because I you know, I read it and read it and read it and read it and thought, My God, he's comparing W. E. B. Du Bois to Hitler mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, in, in our current political climate, people do that all the time now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hitler's back in vogue in in, in a tea party kind of way. But it, it was really shocking to me that, that these people weren't just coming forward to say we don't know who he is or he's not really a native son anymore because he, you know, he went to Ghana. Um, but, you know, this comparison, this comparison to Hitler really threw me, and that's what turned this, this what I thought was going to be a very small project about, you know, Walter Wilson's project um, into, a, into a full-fledged book about the racial politics of the Cold War. Well, let's uh, set the stage for uh, the debate over... Uh, memorializing Du Bois by uh, asking or having you tell us how it was that Du Bois became uh, a communist. Um, well, and again, I, I think that most Du Bois scholars would say, it, you know, it's great that he joined the party and he and he got a card. Um, he was a socialist, certainly. I mean, his, you know, Du Bois. Du Bois was a great admirer of the foundational beliefs of, of the United States. Um, but from his very earliest writings, you can see his, his emerging recognition of the tension that existed between America's foundational beliefs, you know, ideals of morality and justice and equality. And, and Du Bois increasingly thought of such things on a global scale, um, thinking about you know, human rights rather than just civil rights. But the United States had this insistence on achieving these indisputable objectives via a capitalist system. Um, and that's what, what I think we see increasingly becoming problematic for Du Bois and, and increasingly turning Du Bois within these, these more socialist frameworks. Um, that he was, you know, he was just impatient, that American democracy couldn't work mm-hmm. um, in, his, in his view. Um, Mm-hmm. Through a capitalist system, through you know that that you couldn't have this global idea of social justice. Um, I think is how David Levering Lewis puts it. Mm-hmm. Um, in this paradox of your economic system. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's really important to put this in the right context. We talk about uh, people who became communists in the 30s and 40s and 50s a lot on this show, and uh, one of the things I'm always very quick to mention is that many uh, of the people who we would think of as right thinking today. Uh, who, uh, for example, fought very hard against the Nazis very early, were communists. Uh, they yeah. were they were not um, these kind of parodic <laughs> Maoist rebels that you see today. They were actually people of some substance who had really thought about these things and had had gone over to that side. It was also before we knew or we strongly associated communism with Stalinism. That uh, I think there were people that obviously knew. Uh, in the in the 30s and 40s, that uh, Stalinism had uh, done some very bad things to the uh, communist brand. Let's put it that way. But m- many people who we would today respect and admire uh, had strong communist leadings, and and not for no reason. Uh, the, the, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say that it was a, a great idea, but they didn't do it uh, foolishly or out of any anti-Americanism or anything like that. 
Well, it's a political ideology, and, and certainly in the earlier parts of the 20th century, it's you know it's a political ideology that works quite well with unionism. It works quite well, you know, within ideas of of being you know workers and workers' rights and industrialization. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, yeah, it, it doesn't you know you, you need to remember that that political ideologies don't start with a stigma. Um, mm-hmm. That these stigmas are are historically manufactured. Mm-hmm. Um, and Du Bois, you know, Du Bois in a lot of ways is is as close to a pure intellectual in in some phases of his life as it gets. You know, thinking for thinking's sake. Yeah, he had he had um, he had one thing that I you know really was kind of much to his detriment is he just didn't speak in sound bites. He said some things that if you take them out of context they sound awful, but. If you put them in context, you sound totally reasonable, and I think a well, lot and he of doesn't, and he doesn't always sound totally reasonable. Yeah. I mean, you know, he he defends Stalin and and his yeah. defense of totalitarianism. Um, you know, even after things come out um, about yeah. you know the, the Stalinist interpretation of, sure. of communism, yeah. Du Bois is. But but to think about what Du Bois went through and the persecution and the understand his understanding of of inequity. Um, yeah. One one of the ways that I always explain it to students in terms of breaking breaking down, you know, why he joins the Communist Party is it's kind of, you know, why punks um, in 1970s Great Britain start putting swastikas on themselves. Yeah. You know, it's it's not because they're Nazis; it's because they're trying to to inspire hatred um, yeah. and and angst and what have you. So it's you know mm-hmm. it's a very it's a very calculated move. And we should also say that he was hardly alone. You mentioned Robeson, but there, there were many black intellectuals that uh, that, that, that became uh, I don't know they became socialists or communists. And and this was true all the way through the sixties. I remember when I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in the eighties, and uh, there were posters of Angela Davis all over the yes. place. How do yes. you like that, Angela Davis? And, and uh, Henry, Angela Davis and Henry Ford. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very, 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 very popular. Angela Davis was so the the um, this this um this uh, it was more than a flirtation. It, it was a you know it was a conscious decision on their part to kind of join up with these movements. But then, of course, during the Cold War. Uh, uh, communism becomes associated with anti-Americanism, and this is really what kind of did Du Bois in in Great Barrington. So we can now return to that thread of the conversation and explain to us the debate that went on about uh, how to, or whether to, or how to memorialize um, Du Bois. Yeah, and that's what, um, and, it, and it is, a, it's about anti-Americanism, it's about racism, which Wilson is, is the only one who's willing to really come out and talk about. Um, you know, it's about it's about neighbor. I mean, it's about who who belongs in this community and, and who doesn't. Um, it's uh, to explore the racial venom of the Cold War. I mean, there are, there are some fantastic books out there that do that. Um, but I think that looking at the Great Barrington situation, you get to see a, a very small, very it's, it's an impossibly local story, um, and really kind of get into the heads of of breaking down this us versus them uh, kind of situation that the Cold War was. You know, who was the us and, and who was the them? Um, du Bois, who was so firmly embedded as, a, as an us um, in Great Barrington in his early life, um, becomes, you know, is transformed into a them mm-hmm. um, during the Cold War. Um, and so it, it becomes it becomes a battle within Great Barrington. It becomes a battle between you know those who are considered outsiders, whether it's uh, you know the summer homers from New York who are who are working with Wilson, um, Wilson himself considered to be an outsider. Uh, you know those who are interested in the NAACP. I mean, essentially what they're trying to do, what the what the Du Bois committee that, that Wilson Forms is trying to do is they're trying to commemorate civil rights while civil rights is actually still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this movement begins before the death of King. So civil rights is certainly an active social movement when Walter Wilson launches the Memorial Committee in Great Barrington. Um, and and so this this moment of trying to commemorate civil rights by trying to commemorate one of its architects becomes an action of civil rights itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It becomes a battle, and and you know the book really focuses on the dialogue that takes place at town meetings and the dialogue that takes place in the different local newspapers. You know the battle that takes place in the letters in the letters to the editor and the editorial sections um, covering this. Um, you really kind of get a very local, you know, inside the homes of Americans view on on what the Cold War did to people's mindsets. Mm-hmm. If you could characterize very briefly the arguments on either side, I think that would be useful. 
Um, I think that the argument from the, the Du Bois Memorial Committee was, was quite simple. Um, he's the greatest thing that, that Great Barrington ever produced. He is someone that should be recognized. He's a tremendous learning opportunity. He's a, he would be a terrific tourist attraction. Walter Wilson always had an economic angle in terms of what he was doing. Um, and it's the right thing to do. Um, I think on the surface, the opposition to that was he was a communist. Um, he wasn't really from here because... He, he left at the age of 18, um, or he didn't like it here, or he died in Ghana, so he's not even really that American. Um, but then I think that, you know, there's the undercurrent of how can he be one of us? Um, you know, how can we recognize a black intellectual as the most important thing that Great Barrington has ever, has ever done? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, um, I want to talk a little bit about that thesis itself, because, you know, one of the things that I always find is, is very difficult in my own work, and I think many historians find this, is, is moving from a thesis like that. Uh, well, let's put it differently. Uh, how do you uh, identify the uh, roots of such a bias. What, what, what is the, you know, what is the, uh, what are the data that are involved? How, how do you see racism in in a context where people are trying to be faillessly polite? They don't just come out and say the N word or anything like that. Um, this is actually kind of relevant because I think if you take away the extreme, uh, the sort of nutcases in the Tea Party movement, a lot of people say the Tea Party movement is racist. If you take those nutcases away, I. You know, again, I always wonder, people say, well, the Tea Party movement is racist. Well, you know, I, again, you take away those nutcases, I don't know. How do you tell? Well, I think, well, I think that, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because, and I, I think that the Tea Party parallels, you know, the, the Barney Frank showdown over health care with uh, the La Rouge Youth Movement happened about a month before the book came out, and I was talking to my editor and saying, I can't believe the dialogue that's taking place right now. You know, they just called Obama Hitler. All of these posters are coming out with Obama with a little, you know, black mustache, and and we're seeing all of these these things that are so shockingly similar to the way the dialogue mm-hmm. unfolded yeah. in the late sixties and yeah, Great exactly yeah. It was it was really jaw dropping, you know. But but we know that that even though the phrase welfare thug doesn't doesn't use any word that couldn't be said in polite conversation, that is not an overtly racist thing. Um, that that is a racist thing when thrown at Obama. That, that asking Obama for his birth certificate, um, you know, some people call it the new racism because it's it's buried. It's not a Jim Crow kind of approach to to race relations. Um, but just because it's, you know, I don't think it's new. I think it's, you know, racism is the same sentiment. Um, yeah, how and, do we see, how do we see it though in the in the Du Bois case? To, in the Du Bois case, yeah. I, you know, I think that that any time you hear anti-Americanism and, 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 you know, calls of anti-Americanism and chants of patriotism within the Cold War, dealing around um, ideas of civil rights and what have you, that it's that a red flag goes up. And it's, it is a difficult thing to unpack. It isn't a data kind of research. Um, one of the ways that Walter Wilson talks about it, and, and Walter Wilson crafts some very interesting theories about history in his in his overseeing of, of the Du Bois Memorial Committee, is that Great Barrington, after Du Bois left, never embraced him. Um, that there had never been signs raised, that there had, you know, that, that the Berkshires, and, and like I said, the Berkshires is very self-conscious about its place in history and its importance and its cultural value to the United States, and yet he is someone that was completely erased from that, whereas the legacy of just about everybody else has a sign and a museum and a brochure and, you know, fourth-grade class field trips. Mm-hmm. Um, and Du Bois was never part of that group, you know, way before um, he died as a communist in Ghana. Mm-hmm. So there's that. There's, there's kind of this, um, you know, just nothingness in terms of Du Bois that had always existed in Great Barrington. Well, let me, let me ask you a kind of challenging question about that. Uh, how much of that, <laughs> I remember, uh, I was rather embarrassed when they started to name a lot of things after Ronald Reagan while he was still alive. Yeah. I just thought that was just, you know, come on now, hold on here. Uh, but maybe, it, 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 does that have anything to do with it? You know, I don't know if New Englanders are going to raise a monument to anyone who's still, you know, uh, well, they, they still walking around. Did, you know, Norman Rockwell, actually, in the scheme of things, didn't die all that long ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that it was interesting. One local journalist said to me, who had, who had grown up in Adams, which is in North Berkshire and is the homestead of Susan B. Anthony, you know, there's, there's no one there. There's no one on the street that you could stop and say, who's your most important neighbor? And they wouldn't say, you know, everybody would say Susan B. Anthony. Um, yeah. you, could, you could, at any point, in, you know, once Norman Rockwell moved from Vermont uh, to Stockbridge, Everyone knew he was there. Yeah. Everyone talked about him. There was Rockwell stuff everywhere. 
Um, so I, I don't know that the death is necessary. It's certainly necessary to be on a postage stamp because um, it's the law. Mm-hmm. But in terms of collective memory, um, I don't I don't think that that it's necessarily about whether the person's dead or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, even coverage in the local newspapers when Du Bois was doing incredibly important things in the Soviet Union, in his trips to China, um, you know, in terms of the Stockholm Peace stuff, all of the, you know, major world events that Du Bois was taking place in, um, there was never kind of the added paragraph in the local coverage that said, you know, by the by, he's from here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I, yeah, I do think that there's a that there's I wouldn't say it's a systematic erasing because I don't know that it was in anyone's game plan, um, but he's not consciously part of um, this Berkshire history that again is is just so important at every level of education and and community awareness. Mm-hmm. It is kind of odd because people in that area of the the world and I've been there quite a bit because uh, my wife is from there are always very quick to point out that they were. Uh, uh, Abolitionists before abolitionism, you know, they they uh, really uh, you know hated slavery and, and mm-hmm. Sumner and this and that and the other thing. So it it is kind of odd that they wouldn't embrace him during his life. But I I guess was there any particular coded language that they used which you found particularly racist? I know that you know as a Russian historian, whenever you see this expression in a in a, in a Russian newspaper in the nineteen forties or fifties, rootless cosmopolitan, you know that means Jew. And was there right. any language that you saw in the newspaper that said you know this is sort of this is a hint to people? that he was a black guy. Yeah. Did anyone call him articulate? Yeah, right. um, which is usually your code word. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I think that, that, again, the categorization, you know, the, the, the debate takes place again in 2004, um, which is one of the reasons that I, I think, you know, even out of the Cold War, the debate still takes place. And I, I think that the debate that arises in 2004, which is over the naming of the town's new elementary school, uh-huh. um, whether or not it should be named for, for Du Bois or for what have you, it's kind of an open dialogue that the school board starts. I think that the venom with which Du Bois is shot down as a, as a prospective name for that school makes the 60s situation even clearer in terms of the issues of race. Uh-huh. Because by, by 2004, we're not in a Cold War context. Right. You would think that we'd kind of gotten over communism, um, and we know that the vestiges of communism are still there. We see it, you know, in the Olympics. We see it in lots of different places. But the venom within with, with which Du Bois is rejected as the proposed name for the new elementary school, with with the same kinds of letters to the editor, you know, being written, I think really kind of brings home that there was something else going on other than the communist membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that. That when you look at that, you know, one letter to the editor, you know, in the 60s they compare him to Hitler. There's an editor, uh, there's a letter to the editor in 2004 over the school issue that compares him to Hussein, mm-hmm. um, Saddam Hussein. I, I think that these kinds of things um, are, are the ways that we kind of get at this more insidious, um, more codified kind of racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, think that- I was going to say, let me ask a follow up to that. Just. To- Rhetorically, say for instance, you were a person that did think that, uh, truly thought in the bottom of your heart that you think that uh, uh, a grade school should not be named after someone who did the things that uh, Du Bois did. How could you express that uh, in a non-racist way? Well, I think that you know, I, I, I'm hopeful that my mind doesn't look that way. Um, but I think that. Uh, oh, if you, I'm just saying, if you were, think, if you were right, such a person, I think that yeah. to just explore the reason why, why you know, why that there's lots of ways that racism operates that seem to, to on the surface seem colorblind. And you know, you were just talking about Tea Party and uh-huh. racist and what have you, and that, that maybe it wasn't until you know the screaming against John Lewis as he you know yeah. walked to the healthcare that some people woke up and said that. But you know, there's there's ways that policies are written. There's ways that things are done that we know affect particular groups of people and, and different socioeconomic groups. And so even though something may not look on the surface as mm-hmm. racist, um, the way that it operates and executes. And the, and the communist thing really gives people a way out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it continues to do so. So I, I think that, you know, why would someone be opposed to this person being recognized in their community? Um but the answer to that question has to be a really difficult one to come up with. Um, I think that, you know, the, there's a signage debate that, that takes place in Great Barrington over Du Bois. Again, happened very recently. All the sign was supposed to say was that he was born there. 
And, you know, one selectman said, well, he was born here. You know, what are we arguing over? Um, yeah. and, and it really should have been that, that simple. One, that one, uh, yeah, that's tough. <laughs> it should have been that simple, yeah, and yet it wasn't. Well, um, I wanted to say, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned Angela Davis earlier. I, I'm a graduate, a proud graduate of Grinnell College here in Grinnell, Iowa. And uh, a few years ago, I guess it was two years ago, three years ago, uh, my alma mater decided to have Angela Davis come speak at our commencement. And I can tell you, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but I did not like that. Uh, I, I had understood what she had done and what she had said, and I just said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I cannot get behind that. But I, I think that by the definition that we've given, I, that can't be interpreted any other way that I basically that that's somehow coded for race. But I, 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 just, I guess I don't see that, at least in my, well, in my own heart. Maybe it is, but, I, I, you know. You know, I, I think that there's um, that there's and we know this, that there's certain things that are assumed about African-Americans or expected of African-Americans, particularly successful ones, um, that aren't really on par um, with white counterparts. And one of the things that I take a look at um, in the book is, mm-hmm. is the reaction of Peekskill to a concert that's supposed to happen with Paul Robeson. Oh, yeah. No, Paul, yeah. yeah. And, Please talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the Robeson, Robeson's supposed to give a concert in Peekskill. He is not able to safely do so. Um, it basically turns into a riot. I mean, there's really no other way to explain it. And it's, it's similar to Great Barrington in that a lot of supporters of Robeson and supporters of the, the concert are Jewish intellectuals um, from New York City who have houses in Peekskill. Um, but, you know, we're talking about stones being thrown at the car containing Paul Robeson. Um, and that's not rational behavior. No, that one, no problem with that one at all. Um, and, and so I think that... You know, there's a sense in terms of, of the expectations of Du Bois by Great Barrington that he's an ingrate. Yeah. You know, there's almost, there's almost this assumption in terms of this dialogue that, you know, we, we did this for him despite the fact that he's black. Mm-hmm. You know, we supported him and we recognized his, his intellectual worth in high school and we helped send him to college and we supported him, or at least our ancestors did. And then he goes and joins the ultimate enemy and goes to Africa and leaves us. And I think that we see this over and over and over again mm-hmm. um, in terms of what happens when someone, you know, loses favor, when, a, when, a, when an African-American loses favor in the public eye, that there, there really is this kind of sense that this person, that these actions indicate that they're ungrateful and that, that that's where the anti-Americanism comes from and that's where the racist supposition comes from, that it's a real slap in the face to the good guys. Right. And, and I think, you know, what you said about abolitionism before, you know, Great Barrington is, is in the heart of the good yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. you know, they're the captains of the good guys. They're from Massachusetts, yeah. 54th Regiment yeah. to gay marriage. I mean, across the board, yeah. being from Massachusetts is something I'm incredibly proud proud of. But it doesn't mean that it's easier to make these kinds of decisions around complicated, you know, situations. And it doesn't mean, you know, that Scott Brown doesn't get elected in the state of Massachusetts. Sure, sure. sure. Yeah. So how is, um, for those of our listeners who haven't been to Great Barrington, and I strongly suggest that you go there, and I'm not working for the Great Barrington Chamber of Commerce. No, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful out there. Uh, how is Du Bois remembered today? If you walked around Great Barrington, what, what would you see? And, and, and if you started to talk to people about Du Bois, would they know about him? Is it um, taught in the grade school? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much it's taught. The, the private school's been doing a lot, and they actually sent a group of students um, to... Ghana recently um, to visit the homestead there. He, um, yeah, you can find him if you look for him, but uh, it not without, you know, not without trying. The University of Massachusetts now owns the property, and from even from the moment that this that the first draft of this book was done, they've done a remarkable job. There's there's a small parking lot um, at the boyhood site. Um, you know, it is a national landmark. Uh, Wilson's campaign was eventually successful. Uh, in the early 70s, but then it uh, it becomes overgrown and kind of ignored again. Um, UMass takes the deed, and they've created a parking lot and some signage and an actual trail. The first time that I went to the, the boyhood home, you needed a machete to get anywhere near it. <laughs> um, and you can now walk. That said, you could drive by it pretty easily. There's uh-huh. not a huge sign, and there's plenty of people who call me and say, you know, I looked for it. I was there for the weekend and still can't find it. Uh-huh. Um there are some really interesting local historians doing some great work um, about African-American heritage in Western Massachusetts in general. 
Um, there's some cool anthropological projects going on around the Du Bois site um, in terms of early African-American New England life, um, again, coming out of the University of Massachusetts. Um, that said, I think that the school debate that took place you know, not, not very many years ago uh, indicates that there's still a lot of anger. And, and you know, I find that when uh, I've, done, I've done several events up there at this point um, around the book. And there's a lot of really supportive people because those are the kinds of people that are going to come to a book event right. about, about this. But there's also some, you know, I don't want to call them holdouts because I don't think they're holdouts. Mm -hmm. I think that they, they, they are part of a very viable group of people um, and what they're thinking. And, I, you know, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, du, Bois, du Bois is someone that this group of people tried to memorialize. Um, but Du Bois is also someone that if you look at him politically and ideologically, he can't die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's, it's tough to memorialize someone that continues to sort of haunt mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. In a way, I kind of think that, you know, Du Bois, as he exists in not just American consciousness, but I suppose in the consciousness of people of Western Massachusetts, as a kind of complicated figure, is a positive sign. Because we have a tendency, I think everyone has a tendency, to turn, uh, you know, live people into marble statues, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it, Lincoln is the great example that I always give on this show. You know, Lincoln held some uh, some views which I think we would not probably agree with today. Uh, and people tend to forget that because he's been made into marble. Um, and, and so, you know, someone like Du Bois was incredibly complex. He lived a very long time and a very complicated time. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I'm sort of happy that his complexity has been preserved that we, we understand him to be a full-blooded human being and not a marble statue. I mean, I don't particularly like the rancor on either side, but, you know, he was a person all in all. And uh, he wasn't quite clear many times about what he thought and was looking to do good and did the best he could. And, you know, that's, I think, most of us, to be honest with you. I, I came away from the book reading, you know, thinking, well, it, it's, it's terrific that something that happened that long ago is being discussed at all, <laughs> because most things were just forgotten. So. Well, and it's, you know, the, the person that, it's interesting you bring up Lincoln, because the person that I often use as a comparative is Jefferson. And, you know, Jefferson, Jefferson is like Teflon man yeah, in American yeah, history. Yeah. Um, but the reason that, you know, aside from the, you know, the, the interracial relationships and what have you that, that we, you know, about Jefferson, Jefferson, like Du Bois, wrote everything down. Yeah. I mean, probably next to Du Bois, you know, the most prolific thinker-writer that the United States has ever seen. And one of the things that happens when people live a long time and write everything down and are brilliant is they change their minds about stuff. Yeah, that's right. And Americans in general have a real problem with people who change their minds. No, they don't. I mean, like, John, we don't like that at all. No, John Kerry learned that the hard way. Yeah, we don't um, like that. No. Mm -mm. You're not supposed to become more informed about things. Uh -uh. You're not supposed to change your mind. You're supposed to stick to your guns. Yeah, you, you lack integrity. Kind yeah. of thing. Whatever integrity um, is. Yeah. No, that's right. So I think you're exactly right. Yeah. It's, um, that said, the, you know, it's a little worrisome about why Du Bois gets to be complicated and yeah. Jefferson just gets to be a founding father. Well, I think there's um, also a lot of discussion about Jefferson as well. Jefferson, the, I think most people that listen to the show will know that Jefferson was a, uh, you know, to put him in the worst light, he was a you know, uh, atheist, slave-holding, quasi-rapist. Uh, so, uh, you know, he did a lot of other great things. But yeah, you know, uh, Bill on the nickel. I mean, yeah, that's. Well, I, I think that you know, when you're when you're asking about you know, how do you know this is that this is something to explore from a from a perspective of the history of racism? Yeah. Um, I think what we let some historical figures get away with, and what we don't let some historical figures you know get away with anything. Yeah. And Du Bois is someone that hasn't been allowed to get away with anything, despite right. I think something right. like co-finding the NAACP. Yeah, I think you're right. But you know, again, it's one of these cases where. Actually, that's what kind of a huge revelation for me was this, um, and the reason we're talking is uh, Colin Grant's uh, biography of um, Marcus Garvey, and, and uh, I kind of always thought of Marcus Garvey as kind of a buffoon. I think that's what he has been, uh, he's been depicted in that way, but he's an incredibly important and interesting guy, really amazing, and it just oh, really, it opened my eyes. Amazing, amazing guy. Uh, and uh, and we have just kind of forgotten that because we've stereotyped it. So again, I, I think it's kind of a hopeful sign that we're even talking about uh, Du Bois now and that people debate his legacy because I I think the overall lesson is just don't you know sort of write out of Francis Bacon, not the painter but the philosopher. Don't make idols, you know. Right. Just don't make idols. That everybody you're gonna everybody is gonna have their foibles and. Uh, you know, don't throw any stones in glass houses and all that stuff. So, yeah, I, th I thought it was a 
I, I was I admired the people of Great Barrington for even talking about it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you know, but I mean, think of things like the removal of the American Indians. I mean, this is something that's just never discussed. It happened all over the United States, and we never mention it. You know, removal. I don't removal. That's even sanitized. Uh, but you know, we live in that legacy, and we just don't we don't talk about it or acknowledge it at all. So, so good. Good on the people of Great Barrington, in my mind. So we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really want to thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, tell us what your uh, next project is. My next project. Um, I'm continuing. I have, a, I have my own series at Temple University Press, mm-hmm. uh, boarding. So I'm, I'm continuing my work there, you know, acquiring and editing and, mm-hmm. and doing cool things with them. Um, I'm actually currently writing a piece about the Red Sox. Um, and the, idea the Red of, Sox. What is that exactly? Sox. I don't know what yeah, that is. Who are is they? That? Yeah. Um, that fantastic baseball team in Boston. Um, and ideas of community and sports. Um, I'm actually writing a, using the, the theories of, of diaspora, ideas uh-huh. of diaspora to talk about Red Sox Nation. Uh-huh. Um, so that's a project that's kind of fledgling right mm-hmm. now and uh, and that's pretty much what's taking up most of my mind there's there's a lot of stuff that I've been working on again in terms of kind of current political dialogues mm-hmm. um, regarding socialism and healthcare and what have you mm-hmm. um, kind of coming off of this Du Bois book mm-hmm. um, so I've been doing a lot of writing in that direction um, a lot of looking at the Tea Party which is you mm-hmm. know words that as a girl from Massachusetts strike me in a very particular yeah, way sure. and yeah, no, being used in a very different way right now yeah, um, uh-huh. So kind of unpacking, unpacking the spectacle of all that. Yeah. Um, in, yeah, I think that's historically very rich territory because it's just very rich territory. There's a, there's a lot to be said about uh, the, the revival and use of a sign like that. And I mean, sign yeah. sort of in the semiotic sense, you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a lot to be said. So it's good. It sounds, it sounds great to me. So you finish any of them and you call me and I will have you back on the show. Okay. Very cool. Got to get, so get back, get back to the word processor, though. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I should tell our listeners that we have been talking to Amy Bass today about her book, "Those About Him Remain Silent: The Battle Over W. E. B. Du Bois." I, I highly recommend it for those of you who will be vacationing in the Berkshires this uh, summer, and there are thousands of you. Uh, you want to pick a copy of it up and uh, take it uh, to the place itself and, and read the book and think about Amy and listen to this interview, okay? So, Amy, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marshall. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Amy Bass about her new book, Those About Him Remain Silent, The Battle Over W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.